Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at 5th Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. Exodus chapter 1 verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated now. So actually this morning, I, I cheated. I have, I have one more pastoral announcement that I was going to sneak in here. Um, and it really what it is, is an invitation as we begin 2024 together in this new series. And it's an invitation to lean forward in our lives and faith, especially when we come together as a church, um, with an eager anticipation for the blessing of the Lord as, as we come here. There's a, a preparation and a reverence that, that God deserves because of who he is. Um, but there's also a blessing in his invitation to us to, to really lean forward in our heart's preparation as we come to worship. I'm going to read you one short passage. I think um, Alvin has it as a slide even. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. It says, therefore, this is a, therefore it comes from all the, the beauty and the, the promises and the goodness of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So we come to God on a Sunday morning rejoicing in the gospel of Jesus Christ because he is the God who has saved us. And he is holy. And he is awesome in his power. Um, he's redeemed us. He's worthy of all of our worship, all of our obedience. He's worthy of all of our praise and our thanksgiving and leaning forward in joy. And these words, acceptable reverence or acceptable worship and reverence, they're all about a, hot po- a heart posture before him. The heart posture is one that, that is postured in openness and receptivity and, and leaning forward toward him. And I think the invitation for us this year and this morning is to do something a little bit different than what our culture does. Our culture doesn't have anything that's reverent. Culture doesn't have very much that's sacred. Culture doesn't have anything that really deserves the same heart posture of worship that our God deserves. But there's a blessing for us as we come to God prepared. Come to God eager to receive from him, to learn from him for the time that we're together. There's promises of scripture about this blessing, this heart posture result in. Um, One of them is seek the Lord with all your heart and he will be found by you. Another one is draw near to God and he will draw near to you from James 4 verse 8. There's a way that we can come and we can come with the intentionality of, of drawing near to God when we show up on Sunday for 90 minutes out of our week. 
I want to encourage you to do that. I've got a couple of practical suggestions of what this might look like in our lives as we just lean in to receive more from the Lord, as we lean in to worship him as he deserves. Um, one, uh, it's a time to rejoice. If you are gifted with an ability to sing at all, I want to encourage you to sing loudly. Um, if you can't sing, uh, pray the words of the songs out, or even just offer your own prayers to God. But know that this is a time of of worship. Yeah, or sing anyway. That's fine too. Uh, you're welcome to sing. Uh, this is about all of us singing together. Um, but but to turn to our uh, to the Lord in worship. Uh, it's a time for prayer. We have a prayer team always out back. I always make this announcement, but the prayer team's been letting me know that not many people have been coming forward for prayer. And I think that just um, is a missed opportunity. We all, including myself, need prayer. And it's a glorious benefit of just coming here and being prayed for in the congregation of the saints. So make use of that time of prayer. Go forward after our time of communion and be prayed for. Ask for people to lay their hands upon you and pray for you and support you and care for you. Don't miss that opportunity. Um, I want to encourage you, you have the scripture journals in your hands. Um, maybe plan to bring your Bibles, not your phones, on Sunday morning. And this is just going a little bit against our culture and recognizing that our phones are distracting. They're distracting to me. You know, I'm leading the gathering and I'm preaching. Um, and my wife gave me permission to say and to share uh, that she once bought a shirt while she was listening to my sermon uh, on her phone. And, and, and she said... <laughs> That's not throwing her under the bus, but that's her saying, I think we need to hear this, and, and you can use me as an example, not a good one. Um, I want to grow. Uh, but there's a way that we would, I think, benefit if we just silence our phones like we would for a movie. You know, unless you have kids and, and you know that you need to have an alert uh, from, the, from the preschool or the, um, the, the kids' ministry, uh, just put those phones away. Bring your physical Bibles. Um, write notes. Uh, learn. Lean forward. We have 90 minutes once a week to be together in a special way to worship God. And I think we would benefit so much by worshiping him with all of our heart. So it's an invitation. It's an invitation to all of you. Um, it's a reminder that's just, just against kind of how our culture is formed um, as we are going to do something different as we come to worship God. Uh, so with that said, can I pray? And we'll begin as we look at the word of God. Um, Lord, we come to you and we come so grateful that you love us, not because we've been perfect, <laughs> not because of, of deserving uh, that we've somehow convinced you to, to like us and to love us and to save us and to care for us in Jesus, but because you are a great God who's passionate about redeeming a world full of sin, who's promised our salvation through Jesus Christ, who is faithful to fulfill every promise that you have made, so God, on the basis of who you are and your great love for us, we come this morning, we just ask for your help. Would you help us now um, to learn from your word, to receive from your word, um, to be changed and grown in our great joy and obedience towards you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Exodus chapter 1, 1 to 7. I want to start this way. Um, I spoke recently with someone uh, about a, a really tragic situation that they were going through. They're walking someone in their life through a catastrophic stroke. And this person, the situation was so terrible that, that they had, even as a, a younger person, um, they have children, uh, uh, this catastrophic memory loss because of the stroke that they've experienced. And so this person who's had the stroke, he approached my friend and, and asked, I just need you to come to my house and I need you to sit with me 
and I need you to tell me the story of my life. I need you to tell me the story of my life because I don't know how to be a human being on planet Earth or a parent or a friend without relation to this story. I need to know this story. Grace City, I share that because it's a powerful reminder that for any of us to live our lives today, we need to be connected to the right story, to the story of, of our lives in relationship with God. And in fact, it's completely because of our need to know our story that we are turning to the book of Exodus this year. If you've wondered, why are we in this old book written so long ago and so strange and so foreign? It's for this reason. It's for us as human beings to come to learn and to know our story. So we would live the fullness of the life that God has for us in relationship to our story of his salvation for us. See, the, the book of Exodus, it's an interesting one. It's, it's the Exodus out of slavery in Egypt and into relationship with God for the Hebrew people. And this story that we're going to learn, it's the defining story, the archetypical story, use a really big word, for the people of Israel. Without this story, an Israelite in the ancient world did not have an identity. And yet without the story of the Exodus, I don't think that we as Christians today have an identity either. There's two reasons for this. First, because even though we're not all of us, aren't Hebrews. First, because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says that we are all sons and daughters of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. See, in Galatians 3.29, he says that. And that means that the Exodus... This ancient book is the story of our own spiritual ancestors. This is part of our history because of how we've been adopted into the family of God through Jesus. But there's another reason why this story is so important and informative for us. It's because the story of the Exodus is quoted over and over and referred to over and over in the New Testament because it points to an even greater freedom, not just freedom from slavery in Egypt, but to a freedom that Jesus has accomplished to freedom from slavery, to Satan and to sin and to death and into relationship with God, the relationship that we were created to enjoy by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's only then as we come to learn this story of freedom from slavery and into relationship with God that we learn who we really are. That we come to understand whose we are. That we come to learn how we must live then in this world as the followers of Jesus Christ that he's made us. So this morning, for all of these reasons, to learn this story, we're going to embark on a journey. We're going to start the story of the Exodus, looking at this ancient history, this ancient text. And in these first seven verses that have already been read for us, we're going to see that our story is part of a far bigger story, a story of humanity's purpose and how that purpose was corrupted through sin. A story of a promise made by God. The story of God's faithfulness to fulfill his promise to save. So we are three points this morning, looking at humanity's purpose, God's promise, and God's faithfulness as we jump into verses 1 through 7. So we're going to start at the beginning, 
humanity's purpose in verse 1. And just listen to the words there as I read them again. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Now what you don't see in verse 1 is the word and. But the book of Exodus begins with the word and in Hebrew. The translators have omitted that. It's just one tiny little Hebrew letter. That's the way that and works in in their language. But the book itself begins with the word and. So we could say, and these are the names of the sons of Israel, etc., etc. And what that means is that even the story of the Exodus, as significant as it is, and as I've been trying to teach you and say to you, you know, to get your attention in the introduction, with all that importance, it's actually only part of a much larger story. It begins that way, self-consciously, and. And for that large story, that larger story, verses 1 to 7 are like the first season recap. Do you remember those first season recaps? Remember when there used to be a gap between seasons because you had to like have, you know, a period of time where you couldn't access the television show because it stopped producing it and it'd come out, you know, a couple months later. I mean, we skip season one recaps now because we watched the, the previous season the previous night, right? Or maybe already that afternoon. And now we're in season two, right? But verses one to seven, they're like a season one recap to the story of what God is doing in this world. And the question for us then is, okay, if one to seven are recapping something, what are they recapping? I'm not as familiar with the story. I haven't just read season, I haven't watched season one last night. Uh, what's going on, God? Help me understand what's happening here. Because there's a lot of questions in verses one to seven. We can wonder, well, what came before this if it begins with and? And who is Jacob anyway? And why do his sons matter? And why am I given a list of their names in this passage? And how did they come to Egypt in the first place? Well, the answer to those questions, they're all in the book of Genesis. And season one of God's story and his work in the Bible. So the book of Genesis, it's the story of God's creation of this world. Of his creation of us as human beings. And in that first book, our purpose is described. Also, what went wrong with our purpose and how God has created us is described but also how God has begun to do this incredible work of salvation in the midst of the brokenness of human beings in this world. That's described all in chapter one. See, our purpose, we start all the way at the beginning. It's communicated in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. In that passage, we learn that what human beings are made for is that we're made in the image and likeness of God for this glorious purpose, the purpose that as we propagated on earth and filled this earth, where we would go, we would so live in relationship with God that we would fill this world by our presence with the loving rule and the good presence of God wherever we went. The idea is that we were to mediate under God a glorious goodness as we filled the earth. Genesis 1.28 gets at part of that, and I have that here. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The idea there isn't that human beings are to be some kind of terrible, ravenous creatures that just destroy everything. The idea is that we would actually so rule in relationship with God that wherever we went, blessing would go. That flourishing would go. That that this awesome presence of God would go. I preached a whole sermon series on this uh, back in November, just three sermons called The Goodness of Being Human. And you can go on the website and check that out if you're interested in hearing more about it. 
But even though this is our purpose, pretty quick in Genesis, as you're walking through season one, you realize something's gone really, really wrong. And actually, if you're here this morning, you know something's gone really, really wrong. (laughs) Something's gone really, really wrong. Our dominion has not been good. But there's a reason that our dominion's not been good, and it's already given to us in Genesis, in the story. Because what happens is that these first human beings that were made to live in this rich relationship with God, they don't live in rich relationship with God. They reject God. They disobey him. They turn away from him and his purposes. And as a result, their children do the same thing. And then each subsequent generation just descends downward in a spiral of sin and suffering. And the Bible says that's what's wrong with this world. Is this brokenness in relationship with God. Adam and Eve, they disobey God. They're cast out of God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And then the next story continues. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And then Cain kills his brother in a fit of jealous rage. And then Cain's descendants boast that they're more murderous than their ancestor Cain. The story continues and it develops and it's this downward spiral of horrible sin and destruction for 11 chapters. And humanity's sin in these chapters we see, instead of God's good present, it says with the thing that's filling the world as we fill the world. And our sin's wrecking everything. See, so in the story that we're part of, the story that we're getting at into Exodus, as we look at season one, we learn there is a problem in this world. But the problem is sin. There's a tension here. There's a great issue. See, in the early 1900s, at Times of London, they sent a question, which I think is an interesting question, to several prominent authors asking, what's wrong with the world today? It's a great question, right? Yeah, you can see it. It's already up there. I can tell. Thanks for chuckling. <laughs> and this is G.K. Chesterton's famous reply, a very famous English author. What's wrong with the world today? Dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. Such a cheeky answer. But I love it. If you know anything about Chesterton, it's very classic Chesterton. And now, of course, not all that was wrong in the world at the time of Chesterton or today uh, is Chesterton's fault. But his answer is refreshing for one reason. It's refreshing because it's honest. It deals honestly with the right appraisal that we human beings bear a lot of responsibility for what's wrong in this world. That if it wasn't for us and the way that we propagate our sinfulness and et cetera, et cetera, there wouldn't be the problems that we face in this world, whether the the problems that have been done to us that we suffer under or the problems that we then perpetuate to others. I was talking to my father last night. We had a lot of we had an intimate moments in the emergency room, hanging out. My dad and I have best bonding moments in the hospital. And um, uh, he's okay, praise God. Um, uh, but we were talking about our family and talking about family sin, talking about the way that we all inherit from others. We all perpetuate that same sinful pattern. And Chesterton's answer, it gets at that. It's, it's honest. And it is exactly in line with what the Bible says in this season one in Genesis in the first 11 chapters. Because if there's a tension in the human story that needs to be resolved, the Bible puts the finger firmly on the tension, not of a bad government or a single regime or a wrong ideology or a methodology or a parenting style. The Bible says all those things are but surface tensions in the story. 
This much deeper and greater beneath those things is the rebellion of human hearts and their distrust of the loving God they were made to serve. We can't forget this, Christ City, when we look at our lives and we think about our story. When we see the problems of our lives, our first instinct, isn't it, is always to point out there. It's not my fault. Look at all these things. But even in these first 11 chapters, we're called to recognize and we're shown that we'll only be oriented to reality when we recognize that our most fundamental problem isn't out there, but in here. See, the heart of the human problem, as has often been said, is the problem of the human heart. See, Genesis 1 to 11 describes our purpose and our problem. That's our first point. We're going to look at our second point to learn then in the first season what God began to do. What did God do then, given this problem, this tension, the story? Well, God made a promise. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God intervenes into the problem, the chaos of human sin, by calling the father of the Hebrew people, a man named Abram, who would become Abraham later on. And he called Abram out of the pattern of rebellion and sin and distrust in the world and into relationship with himself. And he makes Abraham a promise in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And then we read these words. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, where the whole of humankind had turned away from God, God promised that he would use Abraham's descendants starting in the land of Canaan, making them a great nation, and to make them and to use them to bring blessing to the world as they're restored into obedient relationship with God. As God blesses Abraham and increases his family in this place, he says, I'm going to use you and you're going to bless the whole world. This is my plan to undo what's wrong with the world because of human sin. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God, by his promises to Abraham, he starts to intervene in this story of human sin. And through the darkest and bleakest moments in Genesis, God is faithful to fulfill his promise to the generations that come after Abraham. See, Abraham, he has a son named Isaac, according to promise. Then according to promise, Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, from whom come the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's Jacob who our passage talks about, and his sons, in verses 1 to 6. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, and Simeon, and Levi, and Judah. Issachar, and Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, and Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. And the point in me saying all this about Genesis is this. Exodus 1, 1 to 6, it picks up the story of God's promise to Abraham. Picks up the story of God's promise to bring blessing to the world rather than the awful horrors of sin through Abraham and his family. 
So it's going on in verses 1, 1 to 6. It's an interesting thing to consider because a bunch of things are highlighted when you look at the book of Genesis. You see that the story of this family is kind of a mess, actually. But it's really important to hold on to because what was so important for the ancient Israelite to remember and what they so often did not remember was that God's promise was given to them not because of their ethnicity, not because they were better or stronger or more deserving of God's love than others, not because they were obedient, because we'll see in a second they mostly weren't, but because God is such a God who is gracious and kind to choose them and to promise to make them a blessing to the nations as a free act of his mercy and his grace. And actually, when you read the story of Genesis, and you should if you've not done it, what stands out when you read about Abraham's family is how undeserving they were. I'm going to warn you if you read it, it's not PG. This is a brutally honest and messy story. Which, by the way, is also maybe a reason why you should consider, if you've not before, the truthfulness of this story. Right? They, they show that what's going on warts and all, and the only hero is God. It's not the people. Even Abraham. Abraham lied twice about his wife, saying that she was his sister. So he puts her in a position of vulnerability in this moment of tension when he's afraid. So he's a coward. He says, that's okay. Uh, You know, I know that you foreign tribal leader, you are desirous of my wife and her beauty. You know what? She's my sister. Why don't you marry her? That's all good with me. Then I stay safe. Like, what kind of a guy would do that? And then... His son, Isaac, learned from his dad, I guess, did the same thing with his wife, Rebecca. I think that this is just really a plug for the Christ City premarital uh, counseling class, by the way. Because whatever was going on back in Genesis 12 and the following chapters, they didn't have that class, I guarantee it. <laughs> you know, son, when you get into a tough moment, what you got to do, just say she's your sister. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's, it's horrible. But then Jacob, he, he learned to deal with his, oh, um, there's more than that, sorry. Because uh, then this, this guy, Isaac, um, he plays favorites with his children, with his boys. And he sows division between Jacob, Jacob and, and Esau. And then Jacob, then he, he learns to deal with his dad's favoritism of his brother by learning to be deceptive from his mother. <laughs> and he cheats his brother Esau out of his birthright and his blessing. Cheats his father-in-law out of his prosperity. And then perpetuates a brutal favoritism between his own wives and places his love and affection on one son above all, Joseph. And then Joseph, in his own pride in receiving the favoritism that he had, what does he get? Well, he invites all his brothers to hate him. And his brothers hate him. And they sell Joseph into slavery, into Egypt to get rid of him. And yet through it all, God hadn't forgotten his promise. And it was Joseph who ascends in his slavery in Egypt to the second in command to Pharaoh. It's just this crazy situation. And it was Joseph then who God used in a time of great famine to save both the Egyptians from starvation, but also the family that God's made this promise to, the family of Abraham. And then through Joseph, His family, his dad and his brothers and their kids are brought to live in the fertile and abundant Nile Valley at the northernmost tip of the Nile River in the country of Egypt. See, the book of Exodus, it begins with the descendants of Jacob in Egypt 
all as a continuation of the story of God's promise to bring blessing into a sinful world through the family of Abraham. And yet, what a family. Like, I know you've got skeletons in your own family tree. I've got skeletons in my family tree. But not like this. I don't think. Maybe we do. We probably all do in some ways. But this story has it all. The story has rape and betrayal and murder and incest and enslavement and adultery. Those are things that we've, parts that we've passed over as we've gone through the rest of, of Genesis. You can read about them there. Be, beware. But all this sin is kind of the backdrop that we need to see as we think about our own story. Because as we look at the story of human sin and God's promise, it actually starts to orient us in our own stories. Because it reminds us that just like Israel, our hope in this world does not depend upon our goodness, but upon God's promise. Any hope that you have in this world, it's not because of your own ability, your own deservingness. It's dependent entirely upon God's promise. A promise that he's made certain for us through the Hebrew descendant of Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. See, after the Exodus, the story of Israel, it has some good moments. It has some bad moments. Mostly it has bad moments. But where Israel fails again and again to obey God, to mediate his blessing into this world, to undo the work of sin in this world, the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, has not failed. Where we all deserve God's judgment, Jesus Christ has come. God become human to bear the judgment in our place. He went to the cross and he received that judgment so we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. And where we've all been unfaithful to God, disobedient descendants of Abraham, even spiritually speaking, Jesus was obedient. Where we can never earn God's favor and his blessing. Jesus has, by his perfect life, secured every blessing at the disposal of the God of the universe and given it to us based on the promise of God for all who turn to Jesus to receive it. It's because of Jesus' life and death, he secured every blessing for us, not because of what we've, we've done, but because of what God has done for us through Jesus to fulfill his promise. Look, Christ City, I don't know what you're going through this morning, what your struggles are, what your distractions are, what your difficulties are, but I do know One thing, it's this. Listen up. You will only live the story of God that he's given you to live when you fix your eyes not on you and your failures or even your deserving, but on God and his promises. Fix your eyes on God and his promises to you in Jesus Christ. That's how you'll know your story. The promise that he'll never leave you or forsake you. Promise made in Josh, but also given to the church in Hebrews 13 verse 5. The promise that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer, Romans 8, 26. And that Jesus himself intercedes for us in heaven before God himself in Romans 8, 34. The promise that God who began our salvation will be faithful to complete it. The promise made in Philippians 1 verse 6. 
The promise that every victory and every blessing that Jesus himself has earned, he will certainly give you when he returns. And he will certainly preserve you to receive. You can bank on that on Romans 8 verse 32. The promise that Jesus one day will return and a day is coming when death itself will be destroyed and there will be a resurrection from death and you will live eternally in the presence of God in a world made new. You can read about those promises in Revelation 21. Your future is as bright as the promises of God and God has made a promise to you that is unbelievably good in Jesus. So our God is faithful to every promise that he's made. In fact, it's God's faithfulness to his promise that the first seven verses of Exodus are focusing on above everything else. God's faithfulness. Looked at season one and the recap all in Genesis, but all that's leading up to verse seven to show us that God is faithful because verse seven says this, after Jacob dies, Joseph dies, that generation dies, the next verse says, but the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Think back to season one. In fulfillment of God's command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. In fulfillment of God's promise to redeem the spread of sin in this world by making Abraham's family into a great nation. Despite the fact that when God's people had arrived in Egypt, they were just 70 people. Yet in verse 7, four different Hebrew verbs must be used to express the faithfulness of God to his promise. The people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied and grew exceedingly strong because God is faithful to his promise. He's not faithful because of our goodness or deserving. It's the same application point. He's faithful because of who he is. In fact, if the fulfillment of the promise had depended upon Israel's goodness or deservingness, man, God had so many opportunities to be through with them. In fact, the only reason they're in Egypt in the first place isn't because of their goodness, but because of their sin. See, they're only there because Jacob's sons faked their brother's murder and betrayed him and sold him into slavery. And yet even through the horrors of this family's sin, God is at work bringing redemption. God is at work rewriting the story and being faithful to his promise. I want to bring you just into a moment in the story as, as, as season one ends. Season one was this glorious ending, by the way. You got to get to the end of Genesis and read it. And what happened just a few verses before our passage in Exodus chapter one was this. Jacob had died. And Joseph's brothers suddenly realized we are left alone in the land of Goshen here in the Nile with our brother who we betrayed as the second most powerful man in the whole ancient world. And they're afraid. Because in the ancient world, when you exact revenge, you don't just kill the guy. You kill him and his wives and the children, and you wipe them out completely. And they come to Joseph with pleas for mercy. We can read it in Genesis 50, verses 15 to 20. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, 
it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Joseph, they're making this up by the way. You didn't hear about it, but you know, trust us. We're, we've never lied to you before. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, the God of your father. Look at Joseph's reaction. He knows it's a ruse. Joseph, he, he, Joseph weeps when he spoke to him. His brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Beautiful in its mercy and its goodness. Because you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. See, in our own stories, our problem is that our suffering and our sin so often eclipse our view of the faithfulness of God. I know you're going through this right now, so many of you in your own lives. I know for those of you that are just wrestling with your sins and failures, you can't see God's faithfulness because in your sin, you're like, man, God can't save me. He won't save me. How could he love me? I know when you're suffering, what you think is you just look at what you're going through and how hard it is. And you think, Surely God hasn't saved me. Look what I'm going through. Surely he won't save me. Look what I'm going through. But we lose hope in our suffering and our sin because we forget the tremendous faithfulness of the God who's at work, who turns every sinful tragedy into a story of grace and redemption for those who trust in him. Don't forget the faithfulness of God. Put your hope in his promise. See, he's so powerful and good and faithful towards you that he delights to take even your worst sin and your hardest suffering and cause those things to work out for your good. It's the kind of God that he is. It's what he did in this story. It's how Israel got to Egypt. <laughs> And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's what he is doing in our lives as well. See, Paul, the apostle in Romans chapter 8, which I quoted a lot from earlier, or at least referenced, he gives this incredible promise that's true in the gospel of Jesus, if you trust in him. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All things. Even your sin, even your failures, even the suffering that you're facing, God is writing a story of redemption and of grace. And all he asks from you is this. Come. Come to me. I am a good father. Put your hope and your trust in me. 
and all that I've done to save you. See, friends, we can be so forgetful of our story, of what's wrong, of God's promises, of our purpose, and even of his faithfulness. But the narrative of our lives is a glorious and good one when the narrator of our lives is the God of the Bible, and he invites all of us into his story. So if you're not part of the story of God yet, this morning's an opportunity for you to come to him in the name of Jesus and say, God, would you adopt me into this family and into this story? Would you forgive my sins? Would you deal with my brokenness and my suffering? And he says to you, yes, I will. Welcome. You can pray to him. You can ask him today. For those of us who are just blinded, maybe in our suffering and our sin, but have been followers of Jesus for a long time, this morning might just be the time that we need to remember the story that we're in. To remember the God of grace and of love, of faithfulness to every promise that we serve. To take our eyes off of this moment right now and to put them outward onto him and trust and in hope and on faith and to cling to his words of promise, to trust his character of faithfulness. Would you pray with me? God, would you open our eyes to see Jesus even now, even in this moment, to see that you are a gloriously good God who loves to save Lord, that no matter how much of a wreck we've made of our own lives, you are faithful and you are good. Lord, that you are the God who's not just in the business of redemption. You love redeeming. You love to bring good out of our wickedness and our evil. And you're so powerful and good in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what you have promised to do. Lord, would you turn all of our hope and all of our trust to you? Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us now as we respond in worship, that our hearts would worship you as you deserve for all your glory and all your goodness. As this God that we're reading about in this story, that our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving and joy and shouts of gladness and praise. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.